Welcome to Tarot for the End of Times, a podcast where we utilize the tarot as a tool to navigate through epochs of deep change. My name is Sarah Cargill. I'm an artist, cultural worker, and your host throughout the duration of this series. In each episode, I'll take a look at the archetypal figures presented in the major arcana cards from the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck to discuss what each card has to say about navigating through cycles of change, chaos, and instability. Throughout each episode, I'll offer reflection questions and suggestions for exercises that might support you in inviting the energy and wisdom of these archetypes into your daily life and practice. If you'd like to support this podcast and the person who makes it, you can make a monthly donation through my page on anchor.fm. Your generous act of community care and reciprocity helps me to access the resources I need to make projects like this possible and sustainable. You can also support this work by sharing this podcast with your friends and loved ones, and most importantly, by tuning in. Thanks for joining me. Hi there, and welcome back. Before we get going, I wanted to briefly mention that throughout this episode, I'll be referring to the Hanged Man as the Prince of Liminality. You'll figure out the esoteric implications of this name change soon enough, but I wanted to explicitly say that the name Hanged Man just, you know, it just never sat well for me for reasons that well, you know, more or less have to do with the generational trauma of being Black in America. It's just, it's just too evocative for me uh, to casually throw that phrase around. And I don't want to activate all of that in this space or in my readings unless I am specifically called to do so. There's, you know, there's already enough casual and gratuitous anti-black violence in this world and I personally don't see the need to perpetuate that here vis-a-vis language. So there's that. (laughs) I want to dedicate this episode to my dad who continues to teach me about black temporalities and uh how to make the most out of the in-between time. With that, let's get acquainted with today's guest archetype, the Prince of Liminality. The Prince of Liminality hides in plain sight, suspended, protected by a labyrinthian thicket of old-growth trees sprouting emerald leaves that glint in dappled light. He prefers it here, in the company of trees. Trees are great listeners, and the Prince likes to share. Their branches nod, yes, in the breeze, as in Yes, tell me more, and yes, then what happened, and yes, we'd love to teach you how to listen. 
The prince settles into his inversion and begins to share stories from his travels, of the loves he met and the loves he left, of the roads he visited and what he saw there, of the meals he prepared and shared with loving hands, of the rivers he bathed in and the oceans where he wept, of the secrets he kept to himself and kept for others, and of the storms he had barely survived. The prince, adopting the language of the trees, spoke not with words but with presence, and the trees responded with gentle nods, as in, yes, you have lived, and yes, we understand, and yes, there is more to learn here. Yes, go on, we're listening. As the sun's radiant crown hovers above the horizon, a dusty rose hue diffuses over the sky as a choir of tree frogs and cicadas alert the prince of imminent nightfall. He draws in a languid breath, taking sweet time to enjoy the alchemy of dusk as rays of liquid citrine dissolve into swaths of fuchsia and lavender, then periwinkle and violet. An evening breeze whispers nocturnal secrets through the branches, gently rocking the suspended prince back and forth midair. As the late afternoon heat dissipates, the scent of sweat, skin, soil, and wood begin to rise. The prince draws in another breath, tucking his hands behind his back and settling into an inverted pose, deepening each inhale to circulate warmth in his body. Blood rushes to his head and salty dew droplets pool along his hairline, refracting the last rays of daylight and forming a misty halo around his cranium that mirrors the setting sun. As dusk dissipates and makes way for the evening, the sky settles into an inky indigo and the prince yields the mic. The night belongs to the trees and reciprocity is the currency of the land. It's his turn to listen. One of my favorite books is authored by the brilliant Oakland-based artist, writer, and educator, Jenny Odell. She wrote a phenomenal book called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And in it, she describes what the attention economy is and all the sneaky and insidious ways it siphons one of the few resources we can leverage in this crumbling, late-stage capitalist world. Our attention. Our attention, and by extension, our time, is a critical and non-renewable resource, and late-stage capitalism is hungry for it. Our attention, much like our time, is limited and cannot be replaced once it's gone, but it can be redirected. 
repurposed, withheld. When we choose to do nothing, specifically when we choose to withhold our attention from the sticky paws of capitalism as a strategy of resistance, we not only reclaim this precious resource as a means to divest from the attention economy, but we learn to reinvest our attention in different ways. Reclaiming our attention is a way to, and I quote, change the granularity of perception, end quote, and find alternative responses to capitalism and the violence it incites. In a world that demands an affirmative answer to will you or will you not participate in this fuckery, strategies of refusal that Odell describes creates what she calls a third space, where we create another option by saying, I'll participate, but not in the ways that will be of use to you. This third space, the liminal space between the binaries of yes or no, is where we can pause to consider a different way forward. Enter today's archetype. The Prince of Liminality, patron saint of methodical stillness. He positions himself in an inverted pose while swinging from the tree of life, suspended between the celestial world and the underworld. Though technically positioned in the terrestrial plane, his inverted position gives him a different point of view, an alternative way to engage with the present. Don't let his serene and meditative countenance fool you. Sustaining an inverted posture while tethered by the ankle is no small feat, pun intended. (laughs) He contorts himself into a meditative asana, to access the honest language of the body as he turns his attention toward the somatic experience. The Prince of Liminality dons red pants, a blue shirt, and his glowing halo adds a splash of yellow to the chromatic texture of the scene. The color palette of his ensemble is reminiscent of patron saints, But if that comparison seems like a stretch, his halo seems to give away his secret identity. Let's talk about this. In the pictorial key to the tarot, the OG tarot guide written by none other than A.G. Waite himself and illustrated by Pamela Coleman-Smith, Waite describes the Prince of Liminality as follows, and I quote, I will say, very simply, on my own part, that it expresses the relation in one of its aspects between the divine and the universe, end quote. Indeed, the Prince of Liminality swings from his ankle on the tree of life or the world tree, a terrestrial structure that connects the divine and the universe. The world tree simultaneously demarcates the boundaries between the heavens, the terrestrial world, and the underworld while creating a unifying structure that reflects cosmic wholeness. It's a motif that shows up, well, everywhere in both esoteric and religious iconography. Notably, his inverted posture and the position of the boughs behind him draws attention towards the sacred geometry imprinted in the card. Both his limbs and the limbs of the tree merge to form a cross within a cross within a cross. 
The multiple cross-references, along with his inverted position, the color scheme of his outfit, and the cranial glow, all seem to signify the story of St. Peter, a patron saint who famously insisted on being nailed to an upside-down cross so as to humbly differentiate himself from Christ. Now, martyrdom can show up in the energy of this archetype, and I will get to that in a bit. But first, let's talk about surrender. The Prince of Liminality is entrenched in the process of surrender, which for this episode, I'll describe as the process of relinquishing control with trust to make space for the invisible machinations of the divine and the otherwise inexplicable. The only way the prince can settle into that inversion, the only reasonable way to access some sense of sustainability while in that posture, is to release any and all unnecessary holding patterns that keep them anchored in habits of the past. Releasing tension from the body, releasing our habitual and often survival-driven holding patterns, is a subtle, incremental process. Whether by choice or not, surrender is an incremental process. The prince's overall energy is influenced by the zodiac sign of Pisces, which rules the feet. Acupuncture and reflexology are healing modalities that teach us that our feet, similarly to our ears and hands, map out the entire body by way of pressure points. I'm saying all this to underscore how this archetype invites us to move deeper into presence and awareness through the vessel of the physical body. For the Prince of Liminality, true presence is the natural consequence of embodied listening. He encourages us to listen in and return to our first home, our home home. The most tangible home we have access to as we navigate our earthly lives. The physical pain of our somatic holding patterns can alert us to the other kinds of emotional, psychological, and spiritual holding patterns that keep us stagnant. If the prince's predecessor, Justice, wants us to carefully calibrate and consider the details that matter, then the prince asks us to release the details that don't. Sacrifice is a word that is generally ascribed to this card. And yeah, sacrifices are more often than not required of us as we prepare for the next phase of our lives. But in my opinion, the sacrifice here isn't really about taking a physically uncomfortable shape per se. Instead, the prince cues us to slough off material and energetic distractions that keep us comfortable but stagnant. I believe it was, uh, I believe it was the trap witch who said it best. Your new life will cost you your old one. And there, dear listeners, therein lies the sacrifice. The Prince of Liminality shows up just before the Death card, so he knows a thing or two about the alchemy of stillness. In preparation for what's to come, 
He invites us to check in with the parts of ourselves that crave the comfort of habitual holding patterns, the comfort of distraction, of preoccupation, busyness, and generally (laughs) pretending like those are the things that will save you when faced with the unknown. He quite literally drops in to ask, how might the cumulative noise of habitual distraction keep you from moving forward? The illusion that busyness provides might temporarily soothe our anxieties about the future, but it does little to address the real need. And that's what the prince is trying to get us to. I'll tell you a little bit about my relationship with the prince. He typically appears in my life right when shit hits the fan, particularly in the moments when I feel the strongest urge to put out other people's fires and contain an explosive, shitty situation. When I work up a frenzy to try to catch and contain all the poop particles to just minimize a messy outcome, the prince will show up to pull me out of reaction mode, reminding me that the key to adjusting and working my way through a chaotic moment, which is often a transformative moment, is to get out of my own way by interrupting my holding patterns my habits of control. The prince is... (laughs) The prince is annoyingly chill. But his peace and his capacity to just wait and let the chips fall where they will come from knowing that physical evidence is often the final symptom of change. What I mean by this is that by the time energetic, emotional, and spiritual shifts begin to show physical signs, most of the change has already taken place. The advice that I'm often on the receiving end of when when my Mars and Aries has taken the proverbial wheel <laughs> is to get quiet and listen so that when the time is right for me to actually pivot, to unbind my foot and walk through the portal that is the death card. I can do so with intention and confidence, with a kind of with a kind of lightness that can only come when I decide to let go. No fear. That's the level of freedom that the prince wants us to recognize within ourselves. This is the level of freedom that is already available to us. No fear. Isn't that what the Piscean High Priestess herself, Nina Simone, said about freedom? No fear. That part of us is accessible and available whenever we're ready. Speaking of... The subject matter of this episode brings me right back to episode four, where we first met the High Priestess. Towards the end of the episode, I mention both Nina Simone and Toni Morrison, who were both Piscean women whose sacred works were delivered to the world in the most Piscean way through song and story. When I first started studying the tarot, 
I remember associating the high priestess with the energy of Pisces because, you know, she has a lot of watery and mutable energy. Like, it was really hard for me to decouple the high priestess from Pisces. And that's true even now. <laughs> but this is where the discernment of the tarot reader comes into play and why developing a relationship with the archetypes matters. Learning about the archetypes is not like memorizing your times tables. The meaning that you come to associate with each card is something that unfolds over time. And I personally believe that any reader worth their salt is able to offer an interpretation that is rooted in a relational understanding of the archetypes. So here's mine. When it comes to the astrological associations within the structure of the tarot, there's a little bit more wiggle room than we might initially think. The high priestess's planetary association is the moon. So there are folks who consider the high priestess to be governed by the sign of cancer, which doesn't not make sense to me. Again, she is a very watery archetype. Despite her watery proclivities and general esoteric controversy, I still believe that the high priestess is governed by the sign of Virgo, namely because of her archetypal relationship to the Hierophant and the general role that she plays within the context of the tarot. Now, both the High Priestess and the Prince of Luminality are propelled by mutable energy, mutable earth and mutable water. And as such, they both dwell in the in-between spaces of the cosmic order. There is a relationship between the High Priestess and the Prince of Liminality, and I think it's this. These two operate along the Virgo-Pisces axis. Virgo rules the astrological sixth house, which deals with the realm of daily habits and routines. These routines include your day job and other habits like your movement and hygiene routines that help you maintain your overall health and sense of well-being. But let's remember, habits can also show up as holding patterns, right? Now, these routines aren't limited to physical hygiene, but also encompass your daily mental, emotional, and spiritual hygiene routines too. It's the house of preventative medicine. The High Priestess is concerned with her internal landscape and the cumulative impact of daily care, repair, and study routines. On the other end of the axis, we have Pisces, who governs the 12th house. The 12th house holds the container for the formless, our most private dreams, fears, and deep-seated unconscious programming and our unconscious holding patterns. It's the house of spiritual unraveling, where we get to try on different perspectives to unpack the core of who we are from different entry points. A shift in perspective is often the remedy that is prescribed to 12th house problems. This brings me back to today's guest, 
The Prince of Liminality is, as I mentioned before, governed by Pisces and is the 12th major arcana. Now, I'm not an astrologer, to be clear, but an astrology enthusiast, a meme connoisseur, if you will. So, pardon the kind of mushy, perhaps a little bit half-baked thought, it's Mercury retrograde in my sign, so what's a girl gonna do? Uh, But here's my hot take. The 6th and 12th house axis offers insight into how our daily maintenance practices carry broader spiritual implications. On the flip side, I also think that it offers insight into how our most significant spiritual lessons shape our sixth house needs. If the high priestess is about doing the tangible inner work, then the prince of liminality is about being the inner work. When the prince appears in the upright position, it is often to encourage us to try to take on another perspective by releasing our expectations around what something is supposed to look like. Pisces is the sign of miracles, and it's almost as though the prince himself drops into the scene from above as a kind of a a deus ex machina, attempting to restore our faith in universal or divine intervention. He not only asks us to take on a different point of view to keep our spirit open to whatever changes are taking root, but implores us to loosen our grip and get out of our own way. And again, therein lies the sacrifice. The illusions that we think keep us safe, the illusion of control we work so hard to build and maintain, is exactly what we are called to sacrifice in order to make space for the unimaginable. The prince implores us to recognize the limits of what visual information can offer. In this moment, I'm recalling some of the prose I encountered in Alexis Pauline Gums's book, uh, Undrowned, Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals. She describes how river dolphins have evolved to navigate narrow pathways forged by quick-moving water by listening to their surroundings. For our rubbery cousins, visual information is almost entirely irrelevant. It's just not as reliable as the information they can gather via echolocation. By comparison, We humans are significantly less skilled in echolocation, so this archetype encourages us to get still so that we can catch the bits that we habitually miss. Deep listening doesn't begin and end with hearing, but is a full-bodied experience that requires a certain amount of pause. The prince ushers in the pause before the pivot, bestowing an opportunity for us to call our energy back in and orient ourselves to the shifting winds of change. Waiting can be an intentional and active practice too. 
When the prince appears in the reverse, he often brings our attention to the ways in which we get in our own way by stubbornly digging our heels deeper into a situation that requires us to elevate our feet from the ground altogether. In the upright position, the rope is what tethers the prince to safety. But in reverse, the rope serves no other purpose but to keep the prince bound and at a standstill. This card in reverse represents apathy, stagnation, and the wrenches we throw to stall the inevitable, which is change. This card in reverse also asks us to unpack the ways in which we conflate sacrifice with martyrdom. Conceptualizing sacrifice through the framework of martyrdom is a surefire way to catch the shadowy backhand of Piscean and Virgo energy, which often takes the form of getting involved in other people's mess as a means to avoid dealing with your own. No shade! We've all done it! But, but martyrdom isn't cute to me! Though not always the case, it's how we end up projecting our unmet needs onto others by positioning ourselves as their savior. Mm. Mm -mm. In my experience of being both on the giving and receiving end of big martyr energy, nothing good ever comes of it. Taking on other people's stuff as your own or assuming that you know what's best for others robs them of their agency and prevents them from undergoing the lessons that they need to undergo to evolve into the next version of themselves. Compulsively taking on other people's karma and taking on the whole entire burden of a multi-layered situation also kind of makes it all about you. It becomes about your heroism and the sacrifices you've made for other people. It becomes a way to avoid true relational vulnerability. And it flattens the radically honest internal and interpersonal conversations that we could be having instead. So if this card shows up for you in the reverse, it is really important to turn your attention towards the condition of your internal landscape and to listen inward. It's really important to send compassion to the parts of yourself that habitually turn to martyrdom as a survival strategy and address the parts of yourself that somehow learned how to take responsibility for other people's problems to avoid or minimize harm done onto you. Those parts of us deserve and absolutely require our attention and intention. It's a critical step to soul growth. As we come to a close, I want to share one of my favorite meditation prompts and deep listening compositions written by air sign ancestor and unofficial astrology gay Pauline Oliveros. For those who are unfamiliar, Oliveros was a composer and philosopher who developed a philosophical framework for radical attentiveness called deep listening. I want to acknowledge that 
throughout this episode, I've been centering embodiment as a pathway back to the present moment and to your spirit. But I am also aware that embodiment exercises can be really tough, especially if you're working through trauma that takes you out of your body or trauma that is body-based. So if practices like silent meditation or body-based work are triggering or challenging in ways that are not productive or conducive to your healing, sonic meditations and other sound experiments can work to bring us back into our bodies and into body awareness in a gentler way. It's a little less jarring. If you'd like to learn more about Pauline Oliveros' work and my own experiments with deep listening, I'll leave some links in the show notes, including a link to my most recent work, which I am still recovering from, called Lucid Dreams of the Apocalypse. All right. This sonic meditation is called Your Voice. Think of the sound of your own voice. What is its fundamental pitch? What is its range? What is its quality? What does it express, no matter what you might be verbalizing or singing? What was the original sound of your voice before you learned to sound the way you sound now? (laughs) 